One more time. Is there any fear? Is there any guilt? Is there any anxiety? It's blocking you. It's blocking God's imagination towards you. God, would you illuminate your word for us this morning? Would you speak to us through the story? Would we see in it characters that are like us? Characters we can identify with. God, as we look at this story and as we see you are writing an incredible story in our text. Remind us that none of the players here can see it. None of them. That not, not one of them knows how it's all going to turn out. Show us where their guilt and their fear, show us where their anxiety gets in the way of them imagining a future that's yours. Would you expose those things in us, the things that we feel the, the guilt and the fear and the anxiety that keep us from imagining your future and keeps us clutching at our own ability to make things happen. God help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's hop in. In the last couple of chapters, we've seen Joseph rise in power in Egypt, rise to second in command of the whole empire. This is huge. Given his story, that could be just... And we talked about this last week. That could be just the end of the story. That could be an interpretation of the dream that God gave Joseph when he was a kid. And we could say, and he lived happily ever after. But it isn't. His dreams will actually have a different meaning and a different interpretation. The fulfillment of Joseph's dreams, the dreams when he was a kid, of things bowing down to him. And of him having an epic place in God's story. Those dreams are not fulfilled by his rise to power in Egypt. That's a piece of it. But that is not the fulfillment of his dream. That's really important as we move forward. Let's look in Genesis. We'll pick up in chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, grain that Joseph had stored in Egypt for years and years, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Jacob is that old, grumpy dude in this story. That, that's who he is. He, his family, his favorite son is gone. His other sons are knuckleheads. And he doesn't know what to do anymore. That's kind of his story and where he's at. Why do you keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us that we may live and not die. Do you remember where we left Joseph? Joseph, we left him with all the world coming to him for grain. Things aren't great in the back, back in the land that tried to forget Joseph. The family is in, does not have a good thing going. They are hungry and Jacob is desperate. Desperate enough to risk contact with the empire in order to live. Verse 3. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others. Because he was afraid that harm might come to him. I wonder why. 
Because with Joseph, he was beaten, thrown in a well, and sold into slavery by the other brothers. And it's really interesting that both, remember the brothers are all sons of four women, four different wives that Jacob has. Joseph and Benjamin are brothers from the same mother, when all the other brothers are from other mothers. There is a war going on in this family for significance. And who's going to get love? And who's going to be left on the outside? Jacob does not send Benjamin because they have it out for Joseph and Benjamin. Any, any, any theories as to why they might have it out for just these, because there's four women, and the, the sons are spread through all four women, and Rachel only has two. Is it about the sons, or is it about the mother, or is it about the father? Rachel was Jacob's favorite. Do you remember? Rachel was the one that Jacob wanted. Leah's the one that he didn't want. Bilhah and Zilpah, they're just extras to him. The favored sons of the favorite wife are in danger in this text. Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. But Benjamin doesn't go with them. He's held back. Remember, in the beginning, in the big, at the beginning of our story, Jacob is the powerful father. And here he's rendered powerless. At the beginning, Joseph is innocent and powerless. And we're going to see the roles dramatically reversed. Look at verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all his people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Does this sound familiar? This sounds like it could be a fulfillment of Joseph's epic dream back in the day. Remember he had the dream that he rose up and that all the stuff bowed down to him? They bowed down to him. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. They come before him, bow their, bow their heads to the ground. We're going to see for the brothers, guilt and anxiety will drive everything they do just barely underneath the surface. They will deal honestly in this narrative, but they are trapped by the past and are afraid of the future. Joseph's brothers cannot imagine a world where things turn out okay. And how could they? Right? They've been tortured by guilt for decades over what they did to Joseph. They're starving in the land that God promised them was going to be their home someday. What, could what good could possibly come from this story? Look at verse 8. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. So he knows who they are. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. Now, when I was younger and I looked and I read through this story, I thought that what Joseph does to his brothers is kind of funny, you know? And it's kind of cute. Like, it's a trick. He's the son of the trickster, right? Jacob, Jacob's name means deceiver. And he's a son of the deceiver, son of the trickster. And so I just see it as kind of like a cute, folksy type thing that he does. It's really twisted what Joseph does to his brothers in this text. He pretends and he lies to them repeatedly. Joseph has all of the power in this episode. 
and he will use this to the best of his ability. He is no longer a wide-eyed dreamer. He is a tactical, powerful ruler. I've told you before that Joseph's almost unimpeachable as a character in our story, and he is. But if there's any place where he is impeachable, where he does something that he shouldn't, it is in this episode. And he does a lot that is not honest in this episode. No, my Lord, they answered in verse 10, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. We are honest men and not spies. Is that the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Kind of. Except that one is no more because you disappeared him. That's why one is no more. Joseph said to them in verse 14, It is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. And so the drama is set for our tale today. Your youngest brother, Benjamin... My blood brother from my mother. Brothers of the same mother. Why would Joseph ask for Benjamin? That's his brother. That's his little brother. And do you think that Joseph has reason to be scared that Benjamin's not, tail is not going to turn out well? Of course. Because his own tail ended in them selling him for slave, into slavery said, send one of your number to go get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. Look at verse 17. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison for the, while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. For I fear God. This is a complicated sentence in the mouth of Joseph in this particular context of this story. He says he fears God, but what is he doing in the story? Setting up his brothers. Lying to them. Deception isn't really something you're interested in if you fear God. Using your faith as a justification during your deception isn't just an indication that this is tongue-in-cheek. It shows us that Joseph is being hypocritical here. For I fear God, he says. Look at verse 20. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Here they can see cosmic justice all these years later, not realizing that they don't understand cosmic justice at all. We see that the thing operating the brothers in this text is guilt. It's at the center. It cripples them, and it makes their faith impossible. They cannot see outside of the things that they have done that have earned them this situation. Can you relate? Are there places in your life where you cannot see beyond the things that you have done? Or the anxieties that you have? Or the fear? 
Reuben replied in verse 22, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph weeps. Joseph sees them tortured by their guilt. And I don't know exactly what he's feeling, but I know he's feeling this reservoir of pain. Remember he named his kids? I don't know if, if you weren't here, you didn't hear this, but Joseph had named his kids. The Lord has helped name me to forget. He's made me forget all my pain, all my struggles, all my, all my days in slavery and days in prison. Joseph remembers in our text today, and it is painful, very painful. Not painful enough, you'll notice, for him to reveal himself. Not painful enough for him to reveal the truth. But he does this. Look at verse 25. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and put each man's silver in a sack and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At, one, at the place where they stopped for, for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw the silver, his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other, trembling, and said, What is this that who now has what now? What is this that God has done to us? They tried to do their best. They went where their dad told them. They gave the, they gave the silver. They, they did the thing to buy the food to keep the family surviving. They tried. And now all of a sudden, poof, they have silver. But it's the silver that they were supposed to give to buy the grain. What happens if they go back and say, we, there's been some mistake? You're liars. You're spies. You go in prison, right? They can't, they don't feel like they can go back. And they say this incredible thing. What is this thing that God has done to us? In their conception of God, there's no way God could transcend what they have done. They have no imagination for forgiveness. No imagination for grace. No, they've been tortured by the guilt. By the unresolved issues that they have. They go back home to their father. And we skipped a few verses here because they just recount the story. Complete with having to leave one brother in Egypt at the empire, at the threat of having to take the youngest back to the empire. Think about this. Jacob sees his sons come back, missing one of the sons. We've been here before. That's happened before. What happened when that happened the last time? Did his son come back? No. He was gone. And now they're telling him that they have to take the youngest son of his favorite wife back to Egypt. Look at verse 35. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. And when they, had, they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, you have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Do you hear the despair in Jacob's heart? Joseph is no more. He doesn't believe them about Simeon. Is Simeon no more? No, he's in jail, right? He's back in Egypt. He's not dead yet. Jacob's like, he's dead. 
You killed him. You did, you, sold him. you did something to him. He's gone. And now he says, everything is against me. Old and dramatic and selfish and narcissistic. The despair in this sentence is devastating. Especially when we consider what's happened in the life of Jacob. He cannot imagine a life beyond Joseph. He has said, I will grieve him until the day I die. And now his other son is gone. And now they want to take Benjamin. Look at verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both my sons to death if I don't bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. Notice that Jacob doesn't even count his other sons as their brother. That's how devastated he is. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in sorrow. Wow. Grief blocks Jacob from acting. Grief blocks Jacob from the courage to trust his other sons. Also guilt, also fear. What's blocking you from seeing God's future. Look at Genesis 43, verse 1. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man asked, said to us, he, he, he said to us, You will not see my face again until your brother, unless your brother is with you. Israel asks, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living, he asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How are we to know he would say, bring your brother down here? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. Jacob cannot conceive of a future where the story moves forward. And Judah is begging him, saying, reach out and believe there could be another way. It could be another future. I myself will guarantee in verse 9 his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm and a little honey, some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts because they're all the rage, and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you. You took a bag of silver, take two. For you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. This has been, time has passed. And the Egyptians would think they just stole the money. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. Your brother Benjamin, he says. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Jacob says to his sons, hey, take all the treasure. Like, take everything we got. Take the spice, take the myrrh, take the pistachio, take it all. Take more silver, take double. And yes, you can take Benjamin. 
there is just a shard, a, a not, just a of faith in Jacob. Do you hear it? Do you hear it laced with bitterness? If I'm bereaved, then I'm bereaved. If it's all going to come down to nothing, then it's all going to come down to nothing. But he says this word, may God Almighty grant you mercy. Did they steal the silver? They didn't. Joseph actually put the silver back in their bags. So what do they need mercy for? This is an interesting thing that Jacob pleads with God Almighty to give them mercy. The mercy that they need is a mercy that's been decades in the making. And Jacob doesn't even know it. Jacob doesn't even know that he knows what happened to Joseph. Mercy. Mercy. We need mercy. Only mercy will break the cycle in this story. Do you hear me? Only mercy will break the cycle for you and me. In our personal relationships, in all of our identity and worth and value as a person, only mercy. Jesus said if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, the faith of Jacob is the faith of a flea. It is just, it is a, just a whisper. Just as an aside, do you remember how Jacob got his birthright? Jacob got his birthright because Esau was desperate for food. And now here at the end of Jacob's life, Jacob is desperate for food and willing to give anything to see the story move forward. It is just, I just want to point it out as a great, interesting reversal that happens in the story. Look at verse 15. So the men took the gifts, remember this is God's word, and doubled the amount of silver and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare a meal. They're to eat with me at noon. This is a mark of grace. What kind of welcome should they get in Egypt? If, if what they know is true, which is somehow the silver ended up back in their sacks and it looks like they stole it. What kind of welcome would they expect? Prison, death, game over. Joseph's second in command of all the empire. He can just speak a word and you're gone. He can disappear you. And that's what they're expecting and that's what they should be expecting. What's going on here? What could possibly be happening here? The man did as Joseph told him in verse 17 and took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. Yes, they were, of course. They thought we were brought here because of the silver that was put into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. Is that what should happen if the world works the way we think it works? That's the way they think the world works. That's the way the empire works. They cannot imagine because of their guilt and their fear and their anxiety. They cannot imagine a future that includes anything but disaster. So they went up to Joseph's steward in verse 19 and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. We beg your pardon, our Lord, they said. We came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver the exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. Do you hear that? They're, they're confessing. Like they're telling the truth. They just cannot wait to tell the truth. 
Because it's their own, they, they don't have any other hope. We have brought additional silver with us in verse 22 to buy food. We don't know who put the silver in our sacks. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. What? Why would Joseph Stewart be talking about the God of their father? Aren't we in Egypt? Egypt's got all their own gods. Like, why, why would he know anything about the God of our father? Do you see that the clues are starting to pile up? You know? That maybe this story might go a different way than what they know the story's going to go. How they know it's going to go. Then he brought out Simeon to them. The steward took the men into Joseph's house. Notice that didn't come from Joseph. That came from Joseph's steward. He gave them water to wash their feet and provided fodder for their donkeys. He didn't overpower them and didn't steal their donkeys. He took care of them and gave food for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard that he was to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house and they bowed down before him. There it is again to the ground. He asked them how they were, and they said, how is, and th- then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? Why does Joseph care about their, de- like, why would this second in command of the empire give one iota about who their dad is or how he was doing? They replied, your servant, notice emphasis on your servant, our father is still alive and well, and they bowed down prostrating themselves before, before him. How many? Three times? Four times? You keeping track? As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? Why does he have to ask? I mean, he's the only other one with them, so that's the only thing that makes sense. It's been so long, Joseph wouldn't recognize Benjamin. And he said, after Jacob said mercy over this, and he said, Joseph says, God be gracious to you, my son. Jacob asked for mercy. Joseph asked for grace. Grace and mercy will be how the people of God frame his dreams for his kids. And for humanity throughout the rest of the scriptures. In case you don't know, mercy is when you don't get the thing you deserve. The punishment that you deserve. Grace is a good gift that's given to you freely. This is the message of the scriptures to us. The message of the story to us. The message we should carry to each other and to the world around us. Is it any wonder that Genesis would end epically with a depiction of grace and mercy? As we've seen a beautiful beginning marred by the ugliness and pain. And we've seen glimpses of hope at every single turn. A mercy at every single turn. Of grace at every single turn, even in these pages of Genesis. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother in verse 30, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. That's his brother from his same mother. That's the one that he thought, like, they sold me into slavery, what would they do to Benjamin? Please notice, Jacob 
wants who? Benjamin. Benjamin's the new favorite. Joseph wants Benjamin. The brothers want to survive the famine and their guilt. The brothers expect retribution. But Jacob and Joseph dimly, so dimly but compellingly, forecast a new future for the family. They squint to see mercy and grace, to call for mercy and grace to come. Even if they cannot fathom how the pain wrought in their family relationships will be dealt with, they reach out with a shard of faith. After he had washed his face in verse 31, he came out controlling himself and said, serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to the Egyptians. The writer just gives you a huge old wink that the power of the empire doesn't hold sway here in the second most powerful house in Egypt. That though the Egyptians find the Hebrews detestable, Joseph's in charge of the whole country. That's how much power he has. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest. And they looked at each other in astonishment. Why? How would he know who's the oldest and who's the youngest? How would Joseph know? How would the steward know? Why are they not in prison? Because of the silver. How are they not dead yet? How are they sitting with the most powerful person in the world having lunch and he somehow knows their birth order? They're astonished. And then just to brag, just to like take it to a whole nother level, when portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. It does not take a rocket scientist to figure out what's going on here, right? Why are we not dead yet? How is our guilt and our mistakes how, how has it not rendered our lives just void? It does not take a genius to figure out that Joseph knows who he's dealing with. We have a little more work to do. Look at Genesis 44, verse 1. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. What? Joseph is not some perfect guy in this story. This is another trap, another deception from the son of the trickster. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? It's like witchcraft. Figuring out what the future is going to be. Which is ironic. That just dawned on me. That the cup used for divination... It's used to craft a future for this family. Anyway, this is a wicked thing you have done. 
When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. They said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks the first time. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well then, he said. Let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. <clears throat> Notice that in verse 9, they basically give their youngest brother a death sentence without knowing it. What did, what did Jacob say? He said, If you don't come back with Benjamin, I'm done. I'm going to die. Of grief. And now they're in a situation where not only could they lose Benjamin, but they're going to be lost as slaves. Notice that even the steward, what does the steward say? Does he say, oh yeah, that makes sense, someone dying for the cup. Okay. He actually changes the punishment to be more gracious than what they even said. He says, well, we'll just punish the one, the one who we find it with will be my slave. What's the plan here? What's the plan here from Joseph? The plan here from Joseph is not to see Benjamin die. It's not to see his brothers become slaves. The plan for him is to kidnap Benjamin, to rescue him from the rest of the family. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest, ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Do they not remember the dream? <laughs> the dream of things bowing down to Joseph at the center of the story. This is four or five times I've lost track. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? clever. What can we say to my Lord Judah reply? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who is found to have the cup. More guilt, more fear, more anxiety. They falsely grieved their brother, their father decades ago. They are now prisoners of their own guilt. Unable to imagine do you notice that Judas says a tougher punishment than what the steward even said? But Joseph said in verse 17, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who is found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you, go back to your father in peace. Does this make sense if you're the brothers? I mean, alarm bells should be ringing. Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young man, a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. And he continues on to say the story of how it happened. The story of how they brought him back. 
Look down in verse 30. So now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my brother or to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Who came up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery? Judah came up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Reuben saved his life. I don't know if that was, no one may have been the answer of it. But Judah came up with the plan to profit from selling him into slavery. And now, at the end of our story, Judah is willing to give up his life to see Benjamin's life saved. That is a powerful thing that happens in this story. That is a profoundly moving thing. Judah cannot imagine a future where Benjamin can't survive or can't go back home. They can imagine nothing beyond their own actions. They are completely unable to envision any other possibility, any other chance of hope or redemption in their family. Their father is in grief at a distance. The brothers are clueless and afraid, trapped by guilt and anxiety. But here at the end, Judah's heart just snaps. And he offers himself as a sacrifice for Benjamin. Benjamin is a pawn. It seems loaded with blessing and potential for the future. Grace and mercy. We are breathless, just waiting. What? Wow. We're just waiting for the conclusion. You're going to have to wait a little longer. I'm going to leave you hanging. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes? I hope you're mad. What's going to happen? You can just flip the page and see what happens in your Bible. But I want you to just sit there for a second. Sit there with a story about fear and about guilt and about anxiety. Keeping people from the future that God has. I'm not going to spoil the end, but the future is wilder than they could have ever imagined. It's better than they could have ever dreamed. The dream that was given to Joseph that they thought was going to mean their destruction is not going to mean that in the final pages of Genesis. So I want you to think about you. Where do you have guilt? Where do you have fear? Where do you have anxiety? What is keeping you from imagining the future that God has for you? The future that God has for your family? The future that God has for your work, for your relationships, 
Father, thank you for this story. Thank you that it's so compelling that we're just breathless, wondering what could, what, what could happen. God, in our own stories and with our own guilt and our own fear and our own anxiety, would you please, Father, by your Spirit, free us. The brothers tell the truth. Judah tells the truth. They throw themselves upon the mercy of the truth. The mercy that can come when we tell the truth, God. And God, I pray that you'd give us honesty about the ways that we're guilty, the ways that we're afraid, the ways that we're anxious, the ways that we cannot imagine your future for our life. God, I pray that this story would continue to needle us as we think about it, as we reflect, as we take it with us, as we show grace and mercy to all the people in our life, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. It's for his kingdom's sake we pray. Amen.